hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 211 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment. So, what you should have read for this day, which would be July the 30th, if you were following along by days of the month. <coughs> Which you should have read to be prepared for this was Second Chronicles twenty six through twenty eight, Romans thirteen, Psalm twenty three one through six, and Proverbs twenty verse eleven. So the passage we're going to be covering next, so what we're going to be covering next, because that's where we are in Arthur the Bible in one year segment in the Book of Acts. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 12, verse 19b, through chapter 13, verse 12. So when we last left off in that first section of Acts chapter 12, we saw, we saw Herod Agrippa believing that it was <coughs> through the collusion of the guards on duty in a prison that Peter was able to escape. And so, following the Roman practice of that day, right, Herod Agrippa then goes, does go so far as to order the entire squad of four soldiers that had been guarding Peter to be executed, right? And so what we're now going to see is we're going to see this action move from Jerusalem because, you see, that first part of Acts chapter 12 happens in Jerusalem. Now we're going to see the action move to Caesarea, and then we're going to see it go back to Antioch, and then on to Cyprus. And so, throughout all of this moving about, we're going to pick back up with the story of Paul and a man by the name of Barnabas. <coughs> a man by the name of Barnabas. And more specifically, what has come to be known as Paul's first missionary journey. So now we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 12, verse 19, the second part of verse 19. And we're going to take it through verse 24, which says, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now, um, they now joined together and sought an audience with him after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So the word of God continued to spread and flourish, right? So what we see here is that the fate of Herod Agrippa I, who was the tetriarch or the ruler of Judea at this point in time, right? Who, who he was Roman appointed, Roman backed, Roman supported. So what the fate of this evil man demonstrates, demonstrated to the church the justice of God. As you see, the one who had brutally killed James, which is one of the things that we saw all the way back at the very beginning of Acts chapter 12, and who also imprisoned Peter. And now we need to understand, right, that now Peter is on the run, because he's just escaped from Herod's prison, right, would himself, so Agrippa is going to actually die himself under the judgment of God. What we also see is that all who oppress God's elect, those of us 
who have chosen to put their faith and trust in God will face the eventual justice of God. There is no escaping the justice of God. That's what a lot of people think. They happen to think wrong on that. There is no escaping the justice of God. So what we see, we see, we see that the Tyrrhenian and the Sidonian delegation arranged a meeting with Herod, right? They arranged a meeting with Herod in order to gain his favor because their particular regions were dependent on him for food. So they depended on Herod for food. So they made an arrangement to meet him to kind of sort of kiss up to him to play nicey nicey with him so that they so that he could give them food the food they needed to survive right and so we see that they gained access to him through a man by the name of Blastius Blastus excuse me who oversaw the king's name and was in charge of the king's schedule in other words he was Herod's um chief of staff. He was the one who controlled access to Herod. If you wanted to see Herod, he came through Blastus. If you didn't come through Blastus, you didn't get to see Herod. Following him so far, right? So the, this meeting afforded Herod the opportunity to deliver a speech. Right? So Herod goes on to give a speech, right? So we see, so we see that in verse 21 it says, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Right? So the blasphemous response of the crowd, right, that which was quite possibly prearranged, either on the part of Herod or on the part of Blastus, right? should have been rejected by a Jewish king. But Herod didn't reject this. Herod chose to accept it. And you see, Herod was immediately struck down, right? So what we see happening here, so what is actually ha happening here, right? So what happened here was that when Herod received this blasphemous praise and he failed to give the glory to God, he died. Right. He didn't die quickly. He died very, very slowly, and he died relatively painfully. We're going to talk about that at the very, very end of all of this. So keep that in mind. Herod did not die a peaceful death. Herod died a very painful death. Right. So we. This is all kind of being done. So what we're seeing here, so what we should kind of compare this to, right? If we're going to compare anything to it, we should compare this to what happened to a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that happened years and years prior, right? So what happened there was that King Nebuchadnezzar arrogantly claimed credit for the glory of the Babylonian Empire. Credit that he should never have taken. And what does God do? Nebuchadnezzar. God made Nebuchadnezzar go insane, right? He made him insane. He caused him to go out and live with the animals until Nebuchadnezzar was willing to humbly praise and honor the Lord who alone deserved and still does deserve the glory. So God declared through his prophet Isaiah, I will not give my glory to another. So that's Isaiah 42, 8. So what we see here is that Herod had this sin of pride. And pride is an ugly sin and will come under the Lord's just condemnation. Perhaps in this life, but most definitely in eternity. So when you are tempted to think more highly of yourself than you ought, remember that you have nothing which, not, which has not been given to you by God. So now, so now let's contrast the downfall of Herod, right, which is what we saw here at the very 
beginning, right? Which is what we saw in verses verse the second part of verse nineteen all the way through verse twenty three. Now we come to this last verse, verse twenty four, which says that the word of God continued to spread and flourish, right? So let's contrast the downfall of this evil, wicked king Herod with the flourishing of the word of God, right? So what we see we saw at the very beginning of chapter 12 is we saw that this narcissistic king had attempted to stop the spread of the gospel by murdering and imprisoning the church's leaders. And what ended up happening to him, he ended up as worm food. While meanwhile, meanwhile, the church was growing ever stronger. So now let's pick up in verse two, uh, in chapter twelve, verse twenty-five, and take and take it through chapter thirteen, verse three, which says this: When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And sent them off, right? So Barnabas and Saul here returned to uh, returned from Jerusalem. Right? So they returned from their trip to Jerusalem, right? and they brought with them a man by the name of John, who was also called Mark, who would go on to be the author, the the historically the historical the traditional author for the Gospel of Mark, right? So the message that we see here delivered by the local prophets and the local teachers led to a mission effort, right? So these prophets or teachers, prophets slash teachers, were cosmopolitan. So we see we have Barnabas, who was from Cyprus. We have Simeon, a Jewish name, who likely came from northern Africa, which probably made him black or African, right? So either way, right? So we have so we have a Greek, we have an African, we have Lucius from Cyrene, who was probably also African. We have Menian who had political connections because of his upbringing. In other words, he had political connections because he had been raised with Herod the Tetrarch. And we have Saul, who was a natural-born Jew. So you got this really, really big, diverse group of people. It was made up of people from all different walks of life. Right? So the idea for the journey originated not with the church. So this wasn't just the church's idea. The church didn't just decide all of a sudden, hey, let's send these dudes out to spread the word. No, 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 no. The idea came from the Holy Spirit. So this message given in a time of fasting and worship may have been a public affirmation of a call that had been given privately to both Saul and Prosperous, but the source of the calling and the source of the mission was God himself. In other words, what we're saying here is that it was not a product of deliberation. It wasn't something that they met together and they discussed doing. It was something God told them to do, and they went out and they did it without having to have three million 
committee meetings to decide whether or not we're gonna do it, how are we gonna do it, when are we gonna do it, is it even right for us to be doing it? Instead, God said, hey, send Paul and Barnabas off, and what do they do? They send Paul and Barnabas off. So these imminent travels that we're going to see given here throughout the rest of this small section of the book of Acts, right? All the way up through our readings for today. Which we're actually going to see today, we're going to see, so what we're going to see up through our readings through about the 6th of August, which will take us up to today, which is the 6th. Right, what we're going to see is we're going to see Paul's first missionary journey, we're going to see their reaction to Paul's first missionary journey, and then today we're going to see Paul start his next missionary journey, right? So what we're going to see in this section starting here, right, and going all the way over through verse 14, chapter 14, is what is sometimes referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. But that is somewhat of a misnomer. Because, you see, Paul had already been to Damascus. He'd already been to Arabia. He'd already been to Jerusalem. He'd already been to Syria slash Cilicia. And he had been in Antioch spreading the gospel. So this wasn't really his first journey throughout the world to spread the gospel, but this was his first church-sponsored journey throughout the known world to spread the gospel. It's, uh, so in other words, uh, what I'm saying here is that the subsequent verses do narrate the first prolonged intentional attempt to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to bring the gospel to to a group of non-Jewish people. So now let's pick up in verse uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 4, and take it on down to verse 12, which says the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Pepos. Pepio, uh, Pepos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar Jesus, who was an attendant of the, pro- of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Proconsul and an intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Uh, but Elimaeus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called, who who was also called Paul. Filled the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimaeus and said, You're a child of the devil, and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceits, uh, all kinds of deceit and trickery. You will never stop perverting the right, will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Amazed at the teaching about the Lord. <clears throat> so what we see here is that Saul and Barnabas left for Barnabas's homeland, taking John Mark with them. So, where was Barnabas's homeland? Barnabas's homeland was the island of Cyprus. So, their first stop on the island of Cyprus was the synagogue, which began a pattern that we're going to see repeated throughout Acts. And that pattern is proclaiming the gospel to the Jews first, 
then to the Gentiles. So we see here that they eventually they meet a man by the name of Sergius Paulus, who is described as a proconsul, in other words, a Roman official, and he is also called an intelligent man. So he was probably, very probably, the first the highborn nobility to receive the gospel. And we can say that, and that we can only say that if Manion was merely a friend of Herod's. Remember the man we talked about in verse 1 of Acts chapter 13, right? The, the Manion who was said to have been raised in the house or with Herod the Tetrarch. So if he was not a member of the nobility, then Sergius Paulius would have been the first member of the high nobility to have received the gospel. Right? And so we see that this man, Sergius, had, it as, had as an attendant a Jewish sorcerer, kind of an oxymoron, a Jewish sorcerer, since sorcery was expressly forbidden under Jewish law. He had a Jewish sorcerer, sorcerer, excuse me, named Bar-Jesus, meaning son of Joshua. So, we should understand that this was a very common name back then, right? and it had absolutely no relation to Christ. Had no relation. Joshua was a very popular Jewish name, still is a relatively popular Jewish name. And so for a boy to be called Bar-Jesus or Bar-Yeshua, as it would be said in Hebrew, or son of Joshua, son of Jesus, right, <coughs> would not be all that uncommon. So what we see here is we see here that the sorcerer saw his revenue stream dry up with the pro-council's conversion, and that's why he opposed the gospel. So what we see here is that this man's blindness, the sorcerer's blindness, is paralleling. It has certain parallels to Saul's experience on the Damascus Road, with the big exception that Paul repented, and we see no evidence that this sorcerer repenting. So we see here that in that Luke notes in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, that Saul is also called Paul. So we see here the first time that this man that we later come, that we, would, that we all know as Paul, being definitively called Paul, right? So what's the whole re- point behind that? What's the whole reason behind that, right? So like many... Desaporic Jews, many of those Jews that were scattered throughout the Mediterranean world, Saul had a Roman sounding version of his name. In other words, he had a version of his name that made it easier for the Latin speaking Romans to be able to address him by, because they, would pro- they wouldn't have understood Saul. They wouldn't have understood his Hebrew name, so he needed to have a name that was easily converted into both Latin and Greek, right? So his name may, may very well have been chosen for its similarity to Saul, just a single letter's difference. And it probably had nothing to do with the Latin meaning. And we know that Paulus in Latin means small. And so after this point in time, after this point, Saul is never referred to, Paul is never referred to as Saul again in the book of Acts outside of his personal testimony at the very end of the book of Acts. At the very end when when Paul, when Paul is giving his personal testimony to the Roman officials that have put him in prison at the behest of his own people, he uses his 
Jewish name when he talks about that because that's the name that he would know himself as. He would know himself as being Saul and not as being Paul. Right? So now we come to the question that I said we were going to deal with when we got to the very end of all this, right? So now we're going to deal with the question is question of did worms really are worms what really killed Herod so what we see here is that the word that Luke used for eaten by worms was a word that medical writers of that period used to describe intestinal tapeworms in other words these are worms that will eat through your body's intestines. So the most, or excuse me, they come from eating bad or improperly prepared meat. Right? Not something that you want and something that is left, that is left untreated can and will kill you relatively slowly and relatively painfully because they're going to suck up all the nutrients out of your body. Because they're a parasite. That's what tapeworms are. They're a parasite. They live off of your body. They live off of your food. They live off of your energy. Draining you of all of that. So that they can then live. Right? So the most likely explanation that we have for what actually happened to Herod. Is that when Herod was struck by the angel... He, uh, there was, he had a, uh, there were, <coughs> he, an, an intestinal cyst was ruptured that contained watery fluid and tapeworm larvae. So in other words, what happened is that when an angel came and he struck Herod, right, so when Herod was struck by an angel, the angel struck this intestinal cyst, caused it to rupture, which released all of this tapeworm, tapeworm larvae out into his body, and so they begin to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. So we know that the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Herod was stricken with pains following his speech, and that he died five days later. So in other words, Herod lingered on for five days. Herod didn't die a quick death. Herod died a slow, painful, agonizing death. Which is what to die of take of being eaten of dying from having an infestation of tapeworms is actually going to be it's going to be a slow, painful death, not a quick, fast death. So what we see here is that Herod was eaten by worms both before and after his death. So in other words, Herod ended up getting his just desserts. So that's where we're going to pick up on day 212 as we continue to learn about Paul's first missionary journey. And so what you need to read to, in order to be prepared for that is Second Chronicles 29, Romans chapter 14, Psalm 24 verses 1 through 10, and Proverbs 20 verse 12. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 212 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment. So this day happens to correspond with July the 31st. <clears throat> so what you should have read in order to be prepared for this discussion today you should have read Second Chronicles 29, you should have read Romans chapter 14, you should have read Psalm 24 verses 1 through 10, and Proverbs chapter 20 verse 12. So when we last, oh, so, excuse me, so before we get into that, right, so you got to know where, where we're going with this, right? So we're going to go from Acts, we're going to start in Acts chapter 13 verse 13, and we're going to go through verse 43. So when we last left Paul and Barnabas, they were in Cyprus, 
with a man by the name of John Mark. So while they were on Cyprus, they were able to convert quite possibly the first member of the nobility, of the noble class, to Christianity. And so now what we're going to see today is we're going to see Paul and Barnabas move on to Perga, and then finally on to a city called Pisdian Antioch. Right, so with that, we're going to pick up in chapter 13, verse 13, and we're going to go through verse 15, which says this, from Pemphios, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisdian and Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the Law and the Prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Please speak. So the team here, led by Paul, sailed to the mainland. So in other words, they sailed from Cyprus up to the mainland, what would be today modern-day central Turkey. So they landed on the central Turkish coast. A region that would be called in biblical times Galatia. Right, so keep that word in mind. Right, so they sailed to the mainland, arriving at Perga in a region called Pamphylia, which is about 12 miles inland. So what we see here is we see that John Mark leaves them and the way his leaving, the way his departure is described in, in, in Greek is it's being described as a desertion. So what's being said here is that John Mark deserts Paul and Barnabas. And we're going to see that come up in a big way when we get to our discussion for... August the 6th for today, which will be August the 6th. So keep that in mind for right now. So the team, less John Mark, then traveled to Pisidian Antioch, right? Which was called that to distinguish it from the city of the home church that has sent them on this missionary journey. Because you see, the city that had sent them on the home, city of the home church that had sent them, sent them on this missionary journey was also called Antioch. Right? <clears throat> and so while they were there, they followed the practice of going to the synagogue first. So while we as modern Modern Christians are used to a very specified, used to a, used to a specified speaker teaching the word who does it week after week, day after day. Um, the the practice in the ancient synagogues was very different. So on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader or the leader of the synagogue was the person who had oversight of the spiritual health of the community, in other words, the community's rabbi, right, <clears throat> would ask for a volunteer to speak. Right, so here what we see, we see the leader of the synagogue ask for a word of exhortation from these two visitors, from Paul and Barnabas, quite possibly because he's heard that Paul and Barnabas are great speakers, that they've got something new and different to share with his synagogue. We're not entirely sure why he asked. Well, we do know he asked. More than likely, it was a prompting from the Holy Spirit. But that is completely different. <clears throat> so this practice was ready made. It was ready made for Paul to evangelize. Because you see, he would come into these synagogues, right? 
and they would oftentimes they would ask him to speak. They would ask him to give an exhortation, and he would. And he would pull no punches. He would completely evangelize. He would give the gospel message in the best way he knew how. And he knew very good ways to do it because he was trained to be a rabbi. He was trained to be a teacher. And he used all of his considerable skills in that area to help him when these synagogue leaders would ask him to stand up and give a speech, stand up to give the weekly talk. And Paul would do this at times at a very high cost, a very, very high cost. So what we see here is that Paul jumped at the chance to speak. And so we're going to see what he says now, starting in verse 16, and we're going to go through verse 21 to start off with. So here's what that says. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. So we see here that Paul's address begins with the history of Israel. And so as such... It leads naturally to the claims of Christ, for you see, the storyline of the Bible is fulfilled only in Christ. So the 450 years that Paul mentions in verse 20 covers the time in Egypt, which was 400 years. It covers the wilderness wanderings, which was 40 years, and the inheritance division, or the division of the inheritance in the promised land, which took about another 10 years. So that gives you the 450 years that Paul was talking about here. Uh, so, uh, so Paul also then, Paul also then goes on to refer to the 40 years of King Saul's reign in verse 21. We know that the text in 1 Samuel 31 refers to a 42-year reign, but this may either be a scribal issue or the length of time Saul reigned until he mounted a campaign against the Philippi, uh, against the Philistines, against the Philistines. So now let's pick up in verse 22 and take it on through verse 25, which says. This, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So the next step in the story of the history of the people of Israel is King David. So we need to understand here, right? He said, Saul, Paul basically tells these people, God said that David was a man after his own, God, was a, David was a man after God's own heart. So what is he talking about when he says heart? So the heart in antiquity was not the seat of emotions as it is today, right? 
but it was the seat of the will. It was the seat of the will. Right, so David was called a man after God's own heart, not because he had the same emotions as God. Right? He was called a man after God's own heart because he was committed to do to doing God's will. He was committed to doing God's will. So the reference to David is to appeal to the promise of Second Samuel chapter seven verses twelve through sixteen that the Messiah would come through the house and the line of David, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And so so Paul then goes on to talk about John the Baptist, the great forerunner, the man that the prophet said would come to pro the way, which is what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist came to prepare the way. John the Baptist was not the Messiah himself. Right, so now let's pick up in Acts, uh, let's pick up in verse 26 and take it all the way down to verse 37, which says this, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And tell you the good news, what God has promised our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us. What he, uh, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm: "You are my son today; I have become your father." God raised Him from the dead, so that He will never be subject to decay, as God has said, "I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David." So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Did not see decay. So Paul here, so Paul's resuscitation, his reciting of the gospel, is very similar to what you're going to see over in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. So what we'll see him saying here, as we're seeing here, what we're seeing him say here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, that Jesus was declared innocent, that he was executed and he was laid in the tomb. He was raised from the dead and that he appeared to many who are now witnesses. Paul then goes on to explain bound on this good news in the defense of the resurrection in two all-important proofs. The first proof he shows by citing Psalm 2, right, which says that the resurrection with Jesus is enthronement. And the second proof was the resurrection is confirmed by Psalm 16 because the Messiah did not suffer decay. In other words, Jesus didn't stay in the tomb to rot. Jesus got up and walked out of that tomb because death had no hold on him. Now let's pick up in verse 38 and take it all the way through verse 43, right? which says this, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that when the prophets have said, 
take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers and want, look, you scoffers wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Urged them to continue in the grace of God. Right? <clears throat> so in Christ, so what we're seeing here, right, is Paul telling us that in Christ, the forgive, forgiveness of sins is obtained through it's not obtained through words. It's not obtained through keeping some abstract law that we can never keep because we are imperfect creatures, every single one of us. Right? So Paul then goes on to cite Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5, which is a warning about the consequences of not believing. He's telling people, hey look, Hey, look, 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 I know you don't believe this, right? But I'm going to do something in your day that you would never believe, even if someone told you, right? So you would never believe that somebody could be raised up from the dead, that somebody was, that was crucified in the way that Jesus was crucified, somebody who was beaten in the way that Jesus was beaten, could ever possibly come back from the dead, and yet he did. Bear that in mind. So what we then see is we see that this, the first response to Paul's message, the first response ever Paul ever got for preaching this outside of his hometown, for preaching this outside of his home territory, was a positive response, right? And so we then see that Luke goes on to mention that the Jews and the other devout converts who were circumcised as Gentiles, those who were not ethnically Jewish, but who had come to believe that Judaism was the right way to go, and had then been circumcised so they could be fully accepted into the Jewish community, wanted to hear more, right? <clears throat> So now let's turn our attention to Paul's words over in verse 31, which says, And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him, and him here being Jesus, from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Right, so the word here that is, you, that is translated as witness is martus in Greek. In other words, it is, and it means one who testifies by actions or words to the truth. So Christian witnesses then are those who confirm and testify to the spiritually saving work of Jesus Christ by word, by actions, by lifestyle, and if necessary, even death. So what we need to note is that this Christian witnessing involves seven principles, right? So the first principle is that Christian witnessing is the responsibility of all, of all followers of Christ. In other words, it, not, it is not something that is just for the pastor. It is not just something for those who are members of a church staff. It's not just for those who have gone to Bible college. It is for every person who is a follower of Christ. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The second principle is that it must be missionary-minded, determined to communicate the message of Christ to all people of all cultures in all nations. In other words, to the ends of the earth. That's the second principle. The third principle is that it must speak mainly about the meaning of Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his saving power, and his promised gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's the third principle. 
the fourth principle is that it must allow the Holy Spirit to work through those who are witnessing to bring conviction, that is, to expose and convince those who are being witnessed to of their spiritual need. Right? So what this is all concerning is it's concerning those who are being witnessed to's guilt in regard to sin against God. It concerns their need for a right relationship with him through Christ. And it also concerns ultimately their their excuse me, it also concerns their ultimate accountability to God. So what we're saying here is this kind of God-inspired witness will challenge people to respond to God with faith and to accept a personal relationship with Him. That's the fourth principle. The fifth principle is that those who are Christian witnesses will suffer at times. So the word martyr, right? In other words, the word that we know as for meaning one who dies for a cause or a belief comes from the Greek word for witness. So we need to understand here, what we need to understand here right, is that discipleship involves commitment no matter what the cost. It is a commitment to do whatever you have to do to bring the gospel about, right? So it's all about your actions, it's all about your word, it's all about your lifestyle, and if necessary, right, it's even about having to, it's even about dying for it. So the sixth principle is that it must involve separation from the ungodly practices of the world. So in other words, it must stem from a life that follows God's standards of right and wrong. See that Romans chapter 14 verse 17, and that it relies totally on the Holy Spirit. And as a result of this, God's presence and God's power will be obvious in the life of the witness. So the seventh and final principle is that it is prophetic in that, invo- that it, in that it involves using one's voice to honor God through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so that's where we're going to pick up when we are next together as we see the conclusion of Paul and Barnabas's trip to Pisidian Antioch. So in order for, for you to be prepared for that, here's what you need to read. You need to read Second Chronicles 30 and 31. You need to read Romans 15, 1 through 22. You need to read Psalm 25, 1 through 15, and Proverbs 20, 13 through 15. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 213. 213 of the Bible in One Year segment. So just in case you've forgotten what you need to have read to be prepared for this discussion today is Second Chronicles 30 and 31. Romans 15, 1 through 22, Psalm 25, 1 through 15, and Proverbs 20, verses 13 through 15. So now we're going to be finishing up Acts chapter 13. So we're going to be going from verse 44 in chapter 13 all the way through verse 52 in chapter 13. So when we last left Paul and Barnabas, who are two key players for right now, they had just preached this great 
message that has seen a great deal of converts, both Jews and Gentiles alike, in the city of Pisdian Antioch. Right? And so what we're now going to see is we're going to continue on. So now what we're going to do, now what we're going to see is we're going to see the continuation of Paul and Barnabas' stay in Pisdian Antioch. Because you see, their original message had so moved the people of that city that they asked them to stay for another week, which they did. They stayed for another week, right? And so that's what we're going to pick up right now, is we're going to pick up with the events that took place on that second Sabbath that Paul and Barnabas were in Pisdian Antioch. So we're going to pick up now in verse 44 of chapter 13, and we're going to take it all the way through verse 47, which says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and did not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So what we see here is that only when Paul and Barnabas had gathered nearly the whole town to hear the gospel, that the Jews began to object to this. Right? So Luke goes on to identify the cause of their objection as being jealousy. These people were jealous that Paul and Barnabas weren't spending all their time preaching and teaching to them, but were now spending time teaching and preaching to these people that weren't part of their chosen click. So what we then see is that, so now what happens? So what happens next, right? What happens next? Paul then goes on to accuse the Jews of deeming themselves unworthy of eternal life through their actions. And what we see here is that his final word in this little section, is a citation of Isaiah 49.6, which is what we saw when it says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So what we see here is that Paul is telling us that those of us who are believers are to be light to the Gentiles. And you see, this is the very thing that this missionary team would accomplish. Right, so now let's pick up in verse 48 and take it all the way through verse 52, which would be the end of Acts chapter 13, which says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread to the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is we see that a great number of these Gentiles, right, these non-Jewish people who heard Paul's message ended up receiving Christ. 
Right, so the phrase that we see here, eternal life, right, that's used in verses 46 and 48, so that's the, oh, this, this is the only instance in the entire book of Acts, the phrase eternal life is ever used. So the use of that word in verse 48 must be understood as a confirmation of God's sovereignty in salvation. So what's this passage in verse 48? So it said, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad not of the word of the Lord and all, who were appointed for eternal life believed. So we're going to come to that last part where it says, all who were appointed for eternal life believed when we get done with all of this. So hold on to that for just a few minutes, right? So Luke is seeing here no contradiction between human responsibility and divine Sovereignty. So we're going to get into that more later. Just hold on to your thoughts on that. So the spreading of the word throughout the region was probably done through these new converts, which added to the Jewish angst. It added to the Jewish fears. And so the shaking off of the dust of their feet was what Jesus commanded while he was still walking, is what he commanded the twelve to do when they went out to the cities and spread the message of Christ throughout those cities. He commanded, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet, it will show that they have not only rejected you, but they have rejected me as well. Right. So now let's go back. Now let's circle back around to that phrase in verse 48, appointed for or appointed to eternal life, right, appointed for eternal life, and deal with this idea that comes up out of this little tiny, tiny phrase and little tiny, tiny verse, this idea of predestination, let's deal with that once and for all, get that over with, get this out of the way so that we can move on, right? So some of you will, are, will probably view and have probably viewed verse 48 as teaching something called random predestination, which is the belief that God has already determined in advance who will go to heaven and who will go to hell and that there is nothing that can be done to change your predetermined destination. Hence the phrase predestination. It's already been decided for you. God has decided who he's going to save. That would be the quote-unquote elect, those that God has chosen. And if you ain't part of God's elect, you don't get to go to heaven, and oh, by the way, you can't know if you are part of God's elect until you die. So in other words, there's no hope for those that ultimately believe in this really, really, really screwed up version of the gospel. However, 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 neither the context of this passage nor the word that is translated as appointed gives any hint of such an interpretation. And here is why. So verse 46, right? So verse 46, what does verse 46 say? Verse 46 says, Paul, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So verse 46, what we just read clearly points to human responsibility in accepting or rejecting eternal life with God. So, for that reason, a better translation of the Greek word that, was, that has been translated here as appointed would be, were inclined, willing, or prepared to accept. So, in this case, 
the phrase in verse 48, let me translate, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed, could read, and all who were willing and ready to accept eternal life believed. And this translation agrees completely with the statements that you're going to find in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, and 2 Peter verse 3, 9. And then in addition to that, when Paul wrote his letter to the Roman church over in 11, uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 22, uh, verses 20 and 22, verses 20 through 22, Paul says no person is unconditionally chosen for eternal life. In other words, there are conditions that are put upon you for getting eternal life. It's not just something that God gives out willy-nilly, randomly to whoever he decides wants it. You have to accept it. You have to Place your faith and trust in Him in order to get it. You don't just get it because you happen to be the person that drew the lucky lottery number. You understand what I'm saying now? You don't get it just because you happen to be the one that draws the lucky lottery number. So hope that puts to bed this idea about predestination. That God has predetermined who's going to be saved and God's predetermined who, who he ain't going to save, and there ain't nothing we can do to change that. That's stinking thinking, and that's no way to be thinking. So now we're going to pick up after all of this, as Paul and, when we get, moving to chapter 14, when we're next together, and we're going to see Paul and Barnabas move on to the city of Iconium. And so what you need to read to be prepared for that is you need to read Second Chronicles 32 verse 1 through 33 verse 13, Romans 15 verse 23 through 16 verse 9, Psalm 25, 16 through 22, and Proverbs 20, 16 through 18.